We have another polymath for you in the latest episode of our Screen Music podcast, this time in the shape of Australian actor, writer and director Joel Edgerton. Joel's latest project is Boy Erased, in which he admirably deploys all three of these skills. Based on a memoir by Garrett Conley, the film stars Lucas Hedges, Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe and Troy Seven and tells the story of the son of devout Baptist parents who is forced to take part in a gay conversion therapy programme. Boy Raised is scored by Danny Bensey and Sonder Durians who also collaborated with Joe on his directorial debut The Gift. At Joel's behest, it's a nuanced affair hitting at the darker themes of the movie without ever overstating them. Now, they also make great use of choral voices, as shown by our first cue, the real work. I should say, Joe and I discuss a key plot detail during the course of the interview, so if you're planning to see the film, you might want to hold far before listening to this. Edgerton, welcome to Soundtracking. Thank you. Congratulations on Boy Raised. I've had a fantastic experience watching your film. Oh, thank you. It's thank really, you. really wonderful. What was the connection you had, do you think, with the story and why you wanted to turn it into a film, really? It was weird. I, you know, I went into the book with, with one intention and with one, sort of, I guess, like pre-judgment of sorts. Yeah. That then my exit from the book was completely different. And the exit was the thing that actually made me want to make the movie. I mean, to talk about the entry was that, you know, I had a childhood fear of many things, but being taken away from my parents, being sent to an evil boarding school or or having to go to the military or prison or just anywhere where I'd be taken away and locked up. Separation. Yeah, Yeah. separation anxiety. And I was a real mummy's boy and, and... I was allowed to watch certain films and TV at way too young an age because my beautiful grandmother, but she didn't really keep an eye on us grandkids. <laughs> and so I watched, you know, Cell Block H, as you guys call it, I think. Yeah. Prisoner, we called it. I had a similar thing with Deer Hunter. Oh, you saw it too young? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like my yeah. Russian roulette for yeah. a six-year-old is a little hard to wrap your head <laughs> yeah. around. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it became the foundation of my nightmares, that kind of stuff. And when I did my holy communion and had my relationship with God in a Catholic sense, I would pray about these things. And then, you know, cut to me being a, a, a more of a grown-up acting student and, a, and then a filmmaker. I love movies about that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I picked up the book very quickly because of that morbid curiosity. But what I came out of it with, was an understanding of my prejudgment that this was going to be blood on the pages kind of thing of hateful parents and hateful facility runners doing hateful things to poor helpless kids. It was actually far more complicated because based on information and understanding and belief 
these parents were doing what they thought was helpful and it was actually an act of love and that was something I hadn't really figured into my equation going into the book and to double down on childhood fears to know that Garrod's real experience was that he was sent to an institution he was sent away from his parents and that the person or people that did it were his parents that I never imagined that's like putting a hat on a hat of your fears for me Jared I want you to do well I want you to have a great life I love you but we cannot see a way that you can live under this roof if you're going to fundamentally go against the grain of our beliefs Jared tell me the truth that's all I think about men I don't know why and I'm so sorry when you're going into a project when you know you're going to make it you're mm. writing it you're directing it and you're also in it how easy is it for you to fluctuate between those different roles you know you're, you're in charge but you're also in it as well is it an easy thing to to do and navigate with you've done it before obviously but yeah the writing of it's sort of a singular part of it because the, the writing's the sort of building the ramp to to take the jump you know and 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 so that's sort of done on its on in isolation mm. and that really is just the business card that you use to go and gather your team and you know but that said the writing process has to go on through filming as well because you're constantly tweaking and then editing is the probably the second most important part of the writing process the hardest part is acting and directing at the same time you know and i look at each acting job differently and sometimes i prepare differently for them and yeah. i sometimes you know, I'm always like grabbing information from from whatever work I do, from whoever I work with, directors, actors, people on the street, whatever. And, you know, one way of looking at acting is that you get a lot of time to sit and think and then you brought out of your box or your trailer or wherever you're resting or your chair and you put your cup of tea down and <laughs> you do your thing. But you have a lot of time to prepare and think about it before the scene because there's a lot of time they're setting up lights and moving cameras and equipment yeah. and whatever. that's one way of looking at acting is like I could take all that time to really kind of like think hopefully not premeditate but but absorb a lot of information and then do your thing when I'm directing it's like the opposite it's sort of a free fall because you don't have time to sit and think and 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 I just embrace rather than see it as a negative yeah I just embrace it as as a thing okay all of my time and energy is absorbed by answering questions and where to put the camera and communicating with everybody and talking to other actors and then you know there comes a time where you just like have to just walk into the frame and that to me is like freefall and there's something great about just that lack of premeditation but when you think about it writing a screenplay going through pre-production making a decision about everything down to the tiniest prop is no better research for a role or preparation for a part than yeah. to be across every aspect of a story so informed yeah so, so that free fall is actually is actually bolstered by so much stuff that you do have the wings to land properly yeah. and and to do it without premeditation when you're writing do you listen to music no I do I do sometimes if I need to block stuff out uh, if I am going to listen to music I'll listen to music without words mm -hmm. obviously rather listen to classical music or you know that wonderful sort of uh, massive attack type music where <laughs> there are words but not really words <laughs> <laughs> words that sound like instruments yeah
lot of Tom York like listening a lot of Tom York it's like there, there's lyrics but it, it also is an instrument of sorts so yeah. you can still no idea what you're saying yeah <laughs> I don't want to uh, clutter my brain with words while I'm trying to write words and when you're starting to think about the sound of your films mm. um, and and what that soundscape's going to sound like with Boy Raised you worked again um, with Danny and Sonda on, on this and what was the what point did they come on board and what are the conversations that you have about where this film sits you know in terms mm. of score and contemporary music and all that kind of thing well it's, it's worth noting uh, and you know I could I could easily omit this but it's worth noting that I'm not a very musical person and sometimes I find it very hard to imagine what a movie should sound like and quite often when I watch movies I don't pay as much mind to the soundtrack mm. unless it really stands out yeah unless it's something that's jarring or avant-garde or you know set like a beautiful score like under uh, under the skin yeah you know but it, it's Levy. it has a singularity uniqueness to it it's Misha Levy oh, incredible score yeah Thank you. 
also really love listening to scores of old movies because they, like old cartoons, they seem to be an orchestra almost playing the text or, or close to the text. It's a subtitle, isn't it? Yeah. Almost. It's like a bouncy ball that accompanies the story. And, you know, if, if there's delight, the music's delightful. Or if there's intrigue, the music is sinister. But scores these days are very different and sometimes they go unnoticed. And mm-hmm. I actually really love it when the placement of a camera goes unnoticed or the writing of a screenplay goes unnoticed because the moment it comes too much into the foreground, yeah. it's drawing attention to itself. And any element of a film drawing too much attention to itself reminds us we are watching a movie. Yeah. Sometimes I think that helps a movie. Sometimes I think it hinders a movie. So saying that I'm not very musical means that I do need a lot of help my collaborator on many projects, David Michaud, goes into writing a screenplay and he's collecting bins of music. We've like, had him on the show. Yeah. Yeah, he's brilliant. And his music, his choices, his source music his, that he's collecting while he's writing and listening to while he's writing is, is different to me. So I have to rely on people for music. I love the idea of cutting a film without source music, if possible, yeah. but, but I've never done it entirely. I love when I watch a movie that is devoid of music and still manages to either move me or grip me or scare me without being influenced too much by yeah. music. But I do think that I would always make movies with music in them. And the question is, what is the nature of that music? I really had a relationship with Danny and Sauna on this one where, because the gift had a real anchoring in a genre and it was easier for, for all all elements. So it, it influenced the way we moved the camera. It influenced the way those guys looked at music and other aspects. It influenced the way we lit. You know, mm-hmm. we chose night over day quite yeah. often. We chose corridors because all those things lend itself to, to mystery and, and what's possible Tension. around each corner. Tension. In this movie, I want to put one foot still in that world because to me, Boy Erased is, while there's no jump scares in it, it's a more terrifying movie because it's what people are going through right now all around the world. And yet I didn't want to lean too much into a horror world. So I I was looking at kind of two different pieces of music or two different themes. One was about family and restoration.
the other was about the danger or the sinister nature without painting anything too heavily in the therapy. And just like we weren't vilifying characters, I didn't want to vilify the place too much. I didn't want to influence the audience to think too horror, too scary, and yet we wanted elements of that to live. And because I wasn't really sure about how much music and how I wanted it to work and how I wanted to live in the movie, I asked Danny and Saunders if they were willing to start providing music for me before I even shot, as in music that they had written for other things that they felt could live in the world, yeah. inspired by what they'd read in the script. Mm -hmm. And other composers that they appreciated. So I had a couple of bins of music. At least it was that case where if I was using source music, it wasn't then handing over to a movie to them going, hey, now, now just write something like this. <laughs> yeah. you know, which I was, by the way, guilty of with the gift a bit. It was like, I hate to do this to you, but <laughs> I, I really do want something in this tempo, in this world. And it was like... You're not the only one, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. So many people do that. <laughs> so many people do It's like, do I know it. I asked you to do a dance, but can you just do... The dance from Thriller for me. Like, <laughs> can you wear a leather jacket that's red? Um, you know, and to ask an artist to walk in somebody else's footsteps I, is a shame. I mean, Catherine Bigelow, when I worked on Zero Dark Thirty, was saying to me, which I thought was such a great note in general about all aspects of a movie, is like, just hire great people and get out of their way. Great. You know, don't tell a cinematographer how to frame a shot. Don't tell a designer how to dress a room. Mm -hmm. At least let them do it first, and if you're <laughs> unhappy, yeah. then intervene. Uh, what I started to learn, actually, with Edu, my cinematographer, and with Danny and Sonda, was rather than to prescribe, was rather to ask them for what I wanted emotionally. As an actor, I like to say a director's like throwing a stick and I'm the puppy, and, uh, and I run and get it, and I bring it back and I get a pat on the head for it. You know, tell me what the task is, yeah. but don't tell me how to perform the task. So, you know, as much as possible with, with music and as much as possible with cinematography, I'm trying to say, okay, I want to feel this out of this shot. And I know that I need X amount of characters in it. It's a two shot or it's a single shot, but I want to feel this when I look at the shot. I want to feel this when I'm listening mm -hmm. to whatever score this is in, the, in this piece. So rather than go, bring me four violins and an oboe, <laughs> like, <laughs> Go yeah. do your thing and yeah. then, then let's talk. And so I wanted them in as early as possible so that we could have that negotiation. I also didn't want to hand them a finished film and then go, okay, now write some music, which yeah. I know happens quite often. 
it's nice for them to be part of that journey. You know, even like with the writing process, you might change things along the way. And similarly with the music and stuff, it's brilliant to have them part of that journey and, and along the, for the ride with you as well with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's nothing better than seeing somebody that, that's there along the ride with you get excited by their collaboration with you. You know, you could see from them for example if, if they felt I was steering them in the wrong direction yeah. I could feel when they felt like we were all headed in the same path there's a third tension that exists and that tension is when other people who are you know financiers or producers or in this case a studio you know when you go and you test the movie because they're trying to sort of see what a real world audience thinks of it yeah. and I, I truly believe that music is the most hard to pin down aspect of a film I think everybody can agree more universally on other aspects yeah, okay. it's amazing how when you show a movie and they go I love the score I just thought the score was amazing and then you get other people going I didn't like the score it's such a personal thing isn't it? Oh yeah it's so personal and, and, and polarising in many ways I thought it was to this I mean the same thing that one group of people one individual loves another individual hates <laughs> And, and I started to realise that I had to start to, while I'm not, never profess to be good at music, I don't, I don't play music, I, list, I like listening to music, but I haven't got a very good musical ear. I realised that I had to not become musical, but start to tune in with my own personal taste mm -hmm. and my own instincts so that I could push all the other cooks out of the kitchen. Because I go... How do I feel about it? If I love it and I feel it's right, then everybody else leave me alone. You yeah. know what I mean? Because at some point, if you try and please all the people, you're going to end up with a very discombobulated score. And it had to, at some point, be me and Danny and Saunder on one phone line together or in one room together, yeah. just haggling with each other, mm. not listening to all the other voices. Yeah. of specific moments in the film that really resonated with me in terms of everything just working beautifully with music sort of being a really big part of that was as um nicole's character is driving away from the center with him and it's kind of i mean i was sobbing my eyes out mm. 
at that point. And that's a combination, I think, of kind of what's going on in the story, being a mum of two boys myself, but then also just kind of how the, the music almost feels like it's kind of, it's there with you, it's a character there with you, mm. um, and it was just so perfect. It's an interesting piece of music because the first incarnation of that felt too Hollywood. Okay. It felt too full. And there's something really interesting on a story level is that while she helps break him out of the therapy, I wanted the audience to feel the triumph of that moment mm. and her excellence about doing it. Such a personal journey for her as well in terms of making that decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah big, big moment for yeah. her. And it's actually the moment in the book that made me go, oh, I think this needs to be made into a movie. Wow. But, you know, straight afterwards they're at the hotel and the question is that it's not over, that as triumphant as that moment is, they still got to face the father. The real debate was about how to end that piece of music. You know, this question of what pieces of music resolve and which pieces of music don't resolve, that there was something that had to not resolve in that piece of music. It could feel like it swelled. If it swelled too much, it felt dishonest. Mm -hmm. So it needed to have that element of triumph while also then ending in a sense of, okay, the world is not restored yet. Yeah. There's still a ways to go. So that piece of music was, was a real adjustment. You know, and I also, it's worth noting as well that, that on a commercial level, my brief to everybody was that this movie needed to be seen by as many people as possible. Yeah. And on a musical level, I didn't want to go too crazy, mm -hmm. and too weird or too, uh, I didn't want anybody to be able to like leave the film or any Christian group that, that sent a representative to go, should we, yeah. you know, should we show this to our community? Anyone to have any reason on a performance level, a visual level or, a, or auditory level to go, oh, it's just some weird independent avant-garde Hollywood movie. So yeah. I said to the guys, I'm like, not, not to say that we need a score that's too regular or state or conservative or boring, mm -hmm. but let's not go too wild and let's let enough beauty into it. Let's let an element of horror into it. But let's not go too far. But in the end, I think we sort of didn't go as safe as I thought we were going to go.
One of my favourite elements is this pendulum sort of strings that are in there, in this sense that said to me something about Lucas's character's evolution about choice, like what was he going to do? This like, particularly after the baptism of Cameron, yeah. when he's outside and he's wondering what to do and we start yeah. to sort of go, All right, what's he going to do, this kid? kind of like voices so great yeah and that that sort of religious peppering um, of elements was was something we discussed early on it was one of Danny and Saunders first kind of things like we we feel like children's voices and the innocence of that stuff yeah. going too far again you know talking about going too far with that takes us into horror land because as we know innocence gets used so much subverted to become sinister you know the clown from it and the <laughs> yeah. child from Chucky child's plays like too much choral voices could take us into omen land and too much choral voices could also give us the wrong steer of religion because it yeah. becomes too catholic yeah but enough of that in that hints of that stuff was really worthwhile A kind of flashback as well at the moment where you where they're watching the religious rock band because I remember being at school and having a, a religious rock band come in and play Bill Withers' Lovely Day. Oh, <laughs> I, can't I can listen, hear it already. I can't listen to that song <laughs> anymore. Day. Just Lovely with that, you know, when they yeah. have the note, oh. and it was just like it kind of sends shivers through oh, me now. No, when yeah, I hear the it. long, the yeah, long, the long sustained note. Yeah. <laughs> You, you should know, have been there in the shooting of that scene because I was Gene that crowd up at 2.30 in the morning and so I was up there dancing and p fist pumping and like, <laughs> you know, the daggy, daggy rock band. Yeah, but having kind of music within the narrative, you know, as, yeah. kind of, as, as part of a scene that you're shooting that's a band performing and stuff mm. as well, fun to do as well within... Oh, how did you, you know, finding a band to do that and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, well, our great, you know, casting directors was great. I mean, it's so funny because, you know, Carmen Cuba, who cast the film in L.A., you know, brought me Troy Sivan and Flea. Oh, my God, yeah. 
Which and I was like, are you, are you a casting director or are you just trying to like make sure you have free concert tickets for the rest <laughs> of your life? <laughs> um, um, Flint's but I, terrifying, by the way. Yeah, but I think she also understands that a performer is a performer. You know, just like I say, you know, I'm an actor, but that's just one way of telling a story. I can yeah. also write a story. I can direct a story. Uh, I personally can't write a song. If I could, I would. <laughs> I can paint pictures, you know. However you communicate an idea artistically usually means you are maybe capable and equipped to do it in another facet, as in another facet of your um, sort of, you have different skill set as well. Flea and Troy proved that. But, you know, in terms of finding the rock band, I just think the path of least resistance is you, you cast people in, in small parts who do the thing that you need them to do on the screen because yeah. then there's no, there's is just no question. That's yeah. who you are. Peter Weir said something really wonderful about casting. Uh, he said he'd written a, a paper or an essay on casting and he said, you know, the role in a film is like a crime that's been committed and that the person that you cast usually, you know, he said 99% of the time the, the, the person you choose for the role is the most likely suspect mm. of that crime and that every now and then someone will walk in the door who has blood on their hands. And he said that's the way that he looks at casting sort of medium to small roles is like if you're going to cast a doctor cast a guy who immediately prints as doctor yeah. you know and that's not to say you can't be um progressive and, and open-minded in terms of rocking the boat every now and then but if but if you've got a scene and straight away you need to go christian rock band it's like get a christian rock band yeah. when i have the two cops come to the house to sort of question lucas at the end about this potential stuff around cameron i just hire state troopers because Amazing. they're the ones who are going to know, you know. So I sit down with them and go, what would you do if this happened? They go, oh, well, I would, you know, one of us would talk to the son and one of us would talk to the person. I go, okay, we'll just do that. Amazing. Path of least resistance. <laughs> wow, that's you know awesome. What I mean? Yeah. Troy's brilliant. Yeah. So good. Yeah. And the song that he's at the end. Uh, revelation. revelation. Yeah. Your revelation, won't you liberate me now? From a holy bound Your revolution I will liberate you now As the walls come interesting because along the way there's no question that I was going to work again with Danny and Saunder and then Jonesy from Sega Ross had reached out to us and he had been curious about scoring the film okay wow and I was like oh 
that would be amazing. <laughs> but wow, so I have my sorry, guys. Sorry, Ross. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. Um, <laughs> but you know, we, we started a relationship, yeah. and then I just kept thinking, how can I? get him involved in some way and you know without being that guy goes uh thanks danny and sonda but you know yeah suddenly you know changed my mind because you know somebody i really loved and appreciated as a musician had put their hand in the air and you know this idea of not having any modern music in the film based on the fact that one of the rules of love and action the therapy was that you want to watch movies tv or listen to radio yeah. and no secular music so i thought i'm going to use that as a sort of a rule that the only music I'm going to have is on the radio and it's country music in the car with mum. And then something happened where I, the most tender movie in the scene, in, the most tender scene in the movie with, with this artist that Lucas's character meets, he, play, he plays a record. And initially, actually, I'd, I'd written in the script that it was Otis Redding. Oh, wow, which one? Uh, it was Tenderness, Try Little Tenderness. Oh, gorgeous. Um, no, uh, it was either that or... Um, yeah, try a little tennis. Lover's Prayer, and that was a tip of the hat actually to to uh, a play I did years and years and years ago called uh, The Road by Jim Cartwright. And yeah. these two characters at the end of a night yeah. take these girls back to their apartment and pinned on the wall is an Otis Redding album. And what they do is their ritual is to play the album, play the whole song, and then at the end of the song just have like a spewing out of their feelings as in like a running verbal diary monologue about life. Get it out, 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 you know. Oh, she may be weary Them young girls, they do get weary She gets weary Trying a little tenderness Yeah, yeah Oh, man, that You know she's waiting Just anticipating She'll never, 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 never possess, yeah, yeah. But while she's there waiting, and without them, try a little tenderness. And I remembered that and I, I just was like all right well this moment of honesty between these two boys it's the most pure aspect of the movie I, I wanted that feeling of that feeling I got from listening to Otis Redding of just sort of love and intimacy and and passion and kind of craving you know and yet when I put it underneath the scene it didn't work yeah and I was like what if I just created a new piece of work and made out like it was an old song from 2004. And I, I, I called Jonesy. I said, but how do you feel about creating something? And he, like within a few hours, sent me chords. And I think that's the way he works, is he's so, he just goes into whatever kind of trance of just pure, Amazing. you know, like shuts his, shuts his conscious brain down and just like yeah. 
puts his fingers on an instrument and makes it work. Makes it feel. And then he was the one who said to me, he goes, I love Troy Sivan. Because I said, well, you write lyrics. And what Jonesy does is because he's from Iceland and, and he, you know, he speaks English very well. But along with playing chords, he just sort of riffs in these words that are not quite English and they're yeah, not they're, quite Icelandic. They're all language. It's its own thing. Yeah. And I listened into it and I started to hear certain words and I wrote to him and I said, this is what I'm hearing. And he wrote, well, that's good. Like, <laughs> meaning whatever you hear is okay. Your interpretation. <laughs> and so then I, 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 he said to me, I love Troy Sivan. Do you think Troy would write the lyrics? And I was like, well, I thought I would get you to do that. He said, no, I, I, I think it'd be nice to collaborate with Troy. And I wrote to Troy and I said, look, this is the, these basic chords and this is what I'm hearing. These are, the, these are the few words that I can hear mm -hmm. that resonate with me on a religious level. Yeah. And then Troy, within a few couple of days, sent me back the song with lyrics. And it was just like a perfect combination of oh, two musicians who had great respect for each other. And it was divine, like truly divine. And then we did two versions of it. One which was about background and in the moment in the artist studios really about Lucas's character seeing somebody else for the first time who owns who they are and that sense that he is that revelation that he is opening Lucas's eyes mm -hmm. and at the end I asked them to do a more fuller version where it becomes about Lucas that he's now that person he's yeah. the one who's now full and capable and 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 ready to finally start his life your revelation won't you liberate enough from a holy bow. Your revolution, I will liberate enough as the walls come. talking to you you're, you say you don't you know you don't know much about music you've got an amazing connection with music well I do so but I think I realized that what I what I'm capable of is is recognizing what I don't like yeah and recognizing what I do like but I don't know until I hear it <laughs> <laughs> like you know like yeah. the idea yeah. of going uh, like you having an it, encyclopedic knowledge of, of music like David David Misha knows to to he knows where to search yeah, and yeah. what to grab for um, but I, I'm different. It's like I, I you know, you'll catch me shazamming. You'll, you'll catch me standing on a, on a, on a chair at a, in a loud restaurant trying to get as close to the speaker as possible to shazam <laughs> things. Like, you know, like, 
And I love, I'll tell you what else I do like doing is I love asking people, particularly young people, what music to listen to. Yeah. Because, like, I always used to judge old people when I was young. It's like, ah, you've, you've, you've given up on dressing in certain clothes and you've given up on music, you've yeah. given up on culture. Yeah. And in some regards, I haven't given up on culture. I've just, I've just got too much time that I'm dedicating to other things to think about yeah. culture, new things. And, and it's a shame to let go of that yeah. stuff. Joe, it was a pleasure chatting to you. You too. Congratulations on the film again. Thank you so much, mate. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks. Thank you. From the soundtrack to Boy Rays, that's Who Are You Thinking Of by John C. Running off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Joe Edgerton. My huge thanks to Joe for taking the time to talk to us. Boy Raised is on general release now and has a very moving piece featuring knockout performances in all the major roles. Danny and Saunders score, meanwhile, is available via our very good friends at Backlot Music. Head to edithbowman.com or iTunes to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my chat with David Michaud, who, as Joe pointed out, really is a genuine music fanatic. Please do subscribe to While You're At It. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK to keep up to date with all the latest news. Next up is writer-director Joe Cornish talking about his new film, The Kid Who Would Be King. He was on great form when I got the chance to catch up with him in Glasgow. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company there.